Find the book of Matthew, find chapter 27. I'd like to call your attention to the one verse there that will sort of be where we concentrate. It'll be our text for today. And that's verse number 46. So look down where you can see it in your Bible. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege that you've given us to come into this place today. We thank you for the joys of corporate worship. We thank you that we don't have to be in church, that we can worship you every moment of every day. But we thank you for your commandment to give this day especially to you so that when we do come, you minister to us in ways that maybe we don't find in our personal worship. Some of the examples, what we've just seen already, how a song ministers to our heart, how someone playing an instrument in an offertory and the words put with that ministers to our hearts, how just a kind word from another brother or sister as we come into this place ministers to our hearts, how something we hear in the prayer ministers to us. This, all of this is a part of our worship together today and now the privilege of having before us open Bibles I wonder if we sometimes stop to ponder the cost of that, to have the freedom of assembly and to have God's word preserved down through the years against every attack of Satan and man, a lot of bloodshed in order that we might maintain and have this freedom. We're grateful for that. And help us to treasure it up. Help us to realize that this same exact experience won't ever happen again this same group of people, this same message, whatever it is that makes today's service unique, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we covet and crave, knowing that we can't accomplish anything without the power of God, it won't ever be quite this mix again because you've brought us today for your purpose. We worship you and acknowledge you, but to open our hearts. I pray for that right now. Pray for each listener. Pray that that'll be the heartbeat of each of us, that we'll desire to open our hearts to you because we know you brought us here for a purpose and you have something you will say to us if we will only wait upon you for it. I pray, Father, you will help me. You, you have given me this task. It is such an awesome task, such a, a weighty responsibility, and no man is sufficient for these things. But we read that our sufficiency is of God. We read that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so I pray, dear God in heaven, just come and take these puny efforts that we put forth in the next little while to continue on thinking about the Lord Jesus, especially at this time of the year, and make it a blessing to us and draw us closer to each other and draw us closer to you. For we pray these things now in the holy and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Penetrating questions of Jesus. 25 or so of the most thought-provoking, powerful questions that Jesus ever asked. And this morning we come to one whose meaning and power rings down through the years of time. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46. Here is some interesting background. Most of us, I think, are aware of the fact that from the cross, there were seven cries. That is to say, when Jesus was crucified, there were seven times that he spoke. It's interesting to sort of examine those and put them in the context of where we are today because of those seven, the one that we're looking at, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, is central to them all. It's number four. It's the only one of them which is a question which suits it to what we're doing in this series. And of course, you realize now that we have moved to the deepest place that we can really be in Passion Week because we spent several messages with Thursday, but now here we are on Friday and Jesus is actually on the cross. It's kind of interesting to realize that no answer comes. It's almost as if God lets that question hang there, pregnant with meaning, thought-provoking, depth, power for us to think about. But we do find an answer if we look for it. 
And we find that answer in the broader commentary of Scripture. In other words, maybe not what God chooses to say then because God chooses not to say anything. But it isn't as if God hasn't given us insight and the ability to know this. And we don't have to depend on what we think. We don't have to depend on some human imagination to come up with answers to this. We just have to depend on the Bible because God speaks in the Bible and, of course, the most final and the fullest sense. And so that's what we're going to do in today's message. And I have two key thoughts that I would like to give to you as we look at this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First of all, we're going to look at what some thought because there were standers by and they spoke to this question. We're going to look at that. But then we are going to really get to the heart of this thing and talk about what the scripture says, what God says in answer to this question on other occasions and in his word. What about what the people that were there at the cross thought? Well, if, you, if anybody could have gotten it wrong, they got it wrong. They listened to Jesus and they mistook for the fact that Eli, Eli in Hebrew is my God, my God, sounded like he was calling on Elijah, which would be Eloi, because there was a similarity in the sound of those things. Some of them thought, well, he's calling on Elijah. Now just stop and think about that for a moment, particularly in the light of last week's message. He could have called 10,000 angels. More specifically, the way he said, don't you think that I could now presently call more than 12 legions of angels? What on earth does he have need of Elijah if he can call more than 12 legions of angels? And of course, it just reveals the fact that the people there at the cross really didn't understand. Some of them didn't understand who he was in spite of his many times when he had preached to people and they, they totally got it wrong. It isn't surprising that lots of people get it wrong. And all we have to do, though, to get it right is not be smart, not be smarter than other people. That's not what I mean. All we have to do is look into the Bible. What was Jesus doing there? Well, you know, there have been some really interesting things that people have come up with short of really looking in the Bible to see what it says. It might really surprise you. For example, some people who think about this and try to explain what Jesus was doing there on the cross have regarded it as an accident and in other words an accident you say yeah in other words they basically just thought okay some people didn't like Jesus they killed him end of story that's all there is to it, it happens all the time wow that seems to fall rather short does it not these other people think that Jesus died there as an example. In other words, he was a martyr. So in that sense, there's a wonderful example there because here was somebody who really believed something. In fact, he believed it enough to die for it. And so that exhausts their understanding of what Jesus was doing on the cross of Calvary. He died there as an example. Some people get a little better by saying, well, he died there to show us God's love. Does he show us God's love? Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Of these three things that I've told you, that of course gets the closest of any of them. But you know none of them is fully correct. And you know why? Because none of them really talks about the atonement. None of them really ponders what the scripture has to say. None of them really gets into the heart of this that Jesus was dying there for sinners. God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, the very heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And beloved, any understanding of the cross that falls short of understanding that Jesus Christ was there to deal with our sin, to take our sin upon him, just doesn't get it. But there's a lot of lack of clarity, so we need to be clear in our proclamation of the gospel, and we need to always call people's attention to the fact that, you know, Jesus was not dying there as a hero. He wasn't dying there as a martyr. He wasn't really dying there as an example. He was dying for me. He was dying for you. And the reason he had to do that is because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he had to do that because the wages of sin is death. And he had to do that because he was our substitute. He died in our place. Just like John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That's what he was doing there. So, 
There is always what people think, and sometimes it falls short, and the folks there at the cross, the standers by, they certainly got it wrong. But we need to move on because what's really important is to get it right. And how do we get it right? As I said before, not because we're smarter, not because we go to this church, but because we can look in the Bible and truly search out what it is that God tells us. And so our second thought this morning is what does the Scripture say? What Scripture says? Now, as I have said before, God doesn't see fit to answer on this occasion. I think there's a reason for that. But he does elsewhere in his word. But before we get to those things, how about I do this? How about we pay a little attention to some of the clues that are right in the text itself? Then we'll branch out. These are not things that God is saying except as Jesus utters these words. So do you understand the distinction I'm making? There are some clues that you can get just from looking at what Jesus said. But then we'll move off of that and we'll sort of get to the place where we're looking to see how Scripture explains precisely what Jesus meant in that and answer that question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, first of all, do you notice verse number 45? I don't think you should miss that detail. I just think that this again is just filled with meaning for us if we would ponder it for a few moments. The Bible says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever think about the fact that of the number of miracles that took place, supernatural events that took place, like when Jesus cried, it is finished, and the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom, when the graves came open, and people came out of those graves, things like that. Did you ever think about this? That the entire land of Palestine, or at least certainly there where Jesus was, was enveloped in an inky darkness that we have no other explanation for except the supernatural. I mean, it's really funny sometimes when you listen to what people say. Sometimes people say, well, it was a sandstorm. Good night. That takes more faith than to believe what the Bible says. Some people talk about astronomical reasons, and they talk about a solar eclipse. But you know something, folks? If you're into that and you want to go study it, it's, it's astronomically infeasible for that to happen. You can't have that because at Passover time you have a full moon. That means that the, to have a solar eclipse, you have to have the moon between the earth and the sun. Just think about that for a moment. The sun is on the opposite side of the moon. You have, to, you have to have that to have a solar eclipse. But the moon was full at Passover, which means that the opposite is taking place. Am I making any sense to you? If the, if the moon interposes between the sun and the earth to create a solar eclipse, that means the rays of the sun are shining on the, what we think of as the dark side of the moon. You don't have a full moon under those conditions. And I shouldn't really stray. But do you know there's actually a version of the Bible that translates in Luke that it was an eclipse? And I, you know, you think to yourself, what on earth? What on earth are people thinking? Because all you have to do is study to know that that's not the case. It can't be the case. As I say, it's astronomically impossible for that to be the case. So what is the significance of this darkness? Well, it's not my message this morning. My my point would be to show you this, that it was in verse 46 about the ninth hour. My point would be to call your attention to the fact that as this darkness reaches its greatest intensity and fullness, it is at that point that the agony and suffering of Jesus reaches its fullest and most intense moment such that he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's all very appropriate, you see. Culmination of that dark time, that time of suffering, that time of agony. And the words that Jesus speaks, it all matches up. It all gives us a little bit of a clue as to what's going on here. The agony of that separation from the Father reaches its fullest extent. And then we notice the words, my God, my God. Think about that for just a few moments. See, if you go back, and this is why I wanted to say this in the introduction to the message. If you go back and you look at the seven cries from the cross, number one, he was praying to God. Number seven, he was praying to God. You know what those were? It, the very first cry from the cross was, 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The last one was, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Notice any difference? You notice that in the first one, he calls on God as Father. Do you notice the final one? He's back to calling on God as Father. But in this one, it's not. It's my God, my God. Now, why is that? Well, I, I don't know that I can exhaust it this morning. I don't know that everything to know I can say. I don't think I know everything to say. Some people might come along and say, well, pastor, the reason for it is because he's quoting Psalm 22.1, and that's what Psalm 22.1 says, and I think that's true. I just don't think it exhausts the meaning of this. I think something that we can think about in the context of the message this morning is a loss of intimacy, a separation, a cleavage, as it were, in fellowship, because if you think about it, Jesus resorted to prayer often. Almost invariably, he addressed God as Father, Holy Father, Abba Father, the Aramaic term, but very tender term, Abba. When he first uttered his cry, first cry from the cross, he prayed to God as Father. When this intensity is, of suffering is over and the darkness lifts, he returns to praying to God as his Father. But in these moments, in which God shrouds his son in inky darkness as he suffers, these moments that boggle our minds even to explain or think about in which Jesus' agony, he experienced this for the first time ever. This interruption of his fellowship, this separation I think that's significant. And finally, we come to the word forsake. He says in his prayer, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Kind of interesting because it's an intensive. In other words, you take a simple verb, lepo in Greek, that just means to leave. I mean, it's just like we would have. Simple verb means to leave. But then you build onto it two prepositions in the front, and what you've done is you've created an intensive out of it. So now what it means is a little bit more intense idea of to leave that we would accurately bring out in our English translation as either forsake, which is how it's most commonly translated, or abandon. Hard to understand that, isn't it? Hard to understand how God could abandon his son hard to understand how God might forsake his son until we realize that the drama is climaxing. The drama is the story of redemption. The drama is Jesus suffering on the cross of Calvary. That in that suffering and in that bearing of our sin, there occurs a separation, a breakage in his fellowship with the Father that causes him to reflect on that as he calls attention to it, as he agonizes by using the word abandoned. Why have you abandoned me? So these things already begin to create a picture, do they not? Now, let's go to what we can find that the Bible says, because I think that we can summarize this with three thoughts. There is probably a lot more you can say, but I think the three thoughts that I have for you next will help to really summarize this. First of all, he has taken, this is what's going on here. Why is it that God has forsaken his son? Why is it that Jesus cries out that God has abandoned his son? Think of the word defilement. Jesus has taken our defilement. You just want to think about that for a few moments because the scriptures tell us this. In other words, we have, for example, all of these three things that I'm going to give you this morning. You'll find the seed thoughts for them back in the Old Testament, but the particular place that I'd like to call to your attention is Isaiah. And you don't have to turn because I think we know these verses quite well. But in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, it says this, When thou hast made his soul an offering for sin. 
Then we go back to the background of the Old Testament and we think that, or we find that one of the images that God is using frequently in the Old Testament to try to depict for us what sin is and what it does is the concept of uncleanness. For example, how many times in the Old Testament do you read about this? And in the Levitical system, there were all sorts of things that taught the people about ceremonial uncleanness. And in the case of the leper, just think about the leper for a moment. What did that do? Well, if a man had to go along crying unclean, unclean, that meant that he was separated from the community because that's what sin does. And it was a picture of that. It was meant to teach the people about what the defilement of sin is and how it's offensive to God and how it creates a ruptured fellowship. It breaks our fellowship with God, this defilement of sin. Now, if that's a hard concept, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to use an illustration that there's not a soul in here this morning can't understand. You know what? It's gotten to be almost spring, for which most of you are ready to say, praise the Lord. Get an amen somewhere here this morning, right? It's going to happen this week according to the calendar. Whether it feels like it or not, maybe another question. But you know who comes out when the springtime comes? Mr. Skunk. In fact, I, he's been around already. He's out already, maybe not in the full force that's going to be, but he's out. You'll know because you'll see those holes in your yard and utter a few words under your breath. Old skunk going around your yard digging up those, what do you call them? Grubs. Anyway, I tell you what, you don't want to mess with Mr. Skunk, do you? You know why? Because Mr. Skunk was given by God a way to protect himself, and his way of protecting himself is so potent that even the bear says, uh-uh. What's that? Well, he has two glands in the back, so his armament is rear-mounted. His offensive weapons are rear, or defensive weapons are rear-mounted. Those glands are surrounded by muscles such that if the skunk feels he needs to protect himself when he shoots, whatever you want to call it, that liquid that comes out of there that contains noxious sulfur-containing chemicals. I'm telling you the truth, huh? He can hit at 10 feet, so you better know the range. And we're told that the human nose can detect the skunk, the odor of the skunk at three and a half miles downwind. That's how bad it is. So here's my question. You know that dog you have? Golden Lab or Cocker Doodle or is that what, how you say it? Cock-a-doodle or whatever they are. I don't know. I just know you have them, and you love that dog, and that dog comes in, licks your face, and if nobody else loves me, the dog does, and you let that dog up on the sofa, and some of you let him in the bed. I know you do, but you know what? If Mr. Skunk sprays that dog, you aren't doing that. You know why? Because that dog has become offensive to you now. I mean, you might love the dog, but you're not letting that dog in the house. The smell is offensive, right? Well, this is what God is trying to tell us about sin. You don't get much preaching like this today. Nobody really wants to tell us how bad it really is, that our sin is an offense to God. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, the prophet Isaiah said. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated between you and your God. He says, sin separates because God finds it offensive. God withdraws. The fellowship is broken. And if we have never been saved, we find ourselves in a situation that we are separated from God. We have no relationship with God. And what is our only hope of ever having that restored and being rightly related to God? It's Jesus and what he's doing on the cross right now because he's taking our defilement. And when you go elsewhere in the scripture to see how the Bible develops this, you take this concept that Isaiah talks about. When thou hast made his soul an offering for sin, which is what's going on here, that he is taking upon himself the defilement of our sins 
And the New Testament brings this out. You take a verse like 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And we begin to find an answer to this question, right? Why did God abandon him? Because in these moments he was taking upon himself our sin. And what's a part of that is the fact that our sin is offensive to God. Secondly, you're not only taking our defilement, but the Bible also tells us about guilt. You know anything about guilt? Yeah, we know something about guilt because <laughs> we've all sort of had those moments when we were guilty and knew it. I think I've told you this before, but it's just one of those things I don't think I'll ever forget unless I just forget everything else. Bad thought, isn't it? Man, I can remember being in middle school. Now, for us, that was grade seven and eight. And our guy that was sort of the principal of the middle school was Major Richardson. We called him the mage. Anyway, and he didn't mind, by the way. Anyway, those doors during lunch to those classrooms in the middle school, they locked them. Because they didn't want kids in there messing around doing stuff they weren't supposed to do. Well, I don't know. I was walking up there one time, and it was during that time, and I did the door. It was open. So I went in. I wasn't really doing anything. I went in. All of a sudden, I heard him out there. And the way that door was, it was set in there, and there was a column or a cement kind of thing, how the room was built, where the, the door was set in this, and you could kind of duck around that thing and tuck right back in behind it, which is exactly what I did. Well, my number was up. He knew. He came in that room and walked right around that thing where I was, and there I was about as naked as you can be in terms of being caught. What was I supposed to say? I'm guilty. What else am I going to say? Caught, red-handed, in the act. How does this happen with Jesus? Well, Isaiah 53, 12 says that he was numbered with the transgressors. And Mark, if you would look at this at some time, you don't really need to, but Mark 15, 28 tells us that this was fulfilled when Jesus was crucified between two thieves. But there was more meaning there than that, was there not? The meaning was that just as people passed by and looked at those thieves and knew that they were guilty. They knew they were thieves and they knew they were guilty. So it was that it was meant that when people looked on Jesus, he was considered guilty. Was he guilty? No. What was he guilty then for or why? Because he was bearing our sins. And beloved, people don't want to talk too much about this today too, but you know, you and I are guilty. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us has broken God's law. We all stand just like I was trying to hide. Caught, my number was up, he'd seen me or something, or had teachers seem to have this radar or something. I don't know how it works. We're guilty. It's part of our sin. It's part of what Jesus was doing there on the cross of Calvary, taking our guilt. And then thirdly, if you're guilty, the next thing that comes is a penalty. That's the way it is before the law, right? If you're guilty, there's a penalty. Break the law, convicted of it, found guilty. That's what happens at a trial. This is all a judicial kind of a way of helping us to understand. Found guilty, sentenced, penalty. There's a penalty there. Well, Isaiah 53, 6 tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He took our penalty. What's the wages of sin? Death. You know, I thought about this the other day. There's no deflation, and there's no inflation. Since the Garden of Eden, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. 
The wages of sin is death. Hasn't gone up, hasn't gone down. It doesn't need to go up. It's as bad as it can get. Because it involves separation from God and it was symbolized by the fact that Adam and Eve, God drove them from the garden, put the cherubim there in order to keep them from the garden and keep them from the tree of life so that they would not eat thereof in their fallen condition apart from redemption. It's still death. Only the Bible can explain why people die. I mean, you go to the doctor and he can say, well, your heart's going to stop beating, so you'll die. True, very true. Your heart stops beating, you're definitely gone. Yes, we can have biological explanations. We can have medical explanations. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about who out there, especially of the people who don't believe the Bible and who make fun of those who do believe the Bible, who really has an answer for why people die? It's one of the most fundamental questions you could possibly ask. Why do people and why do other things? Why does everything die? I mean, if evolution is so great and we're getting better and better, you'd kind of figure out maybe we'd be living longer and longer. And I guess we are a little bit, but just because medical science has come along and given us so many things to help prolong our lives. But you're going to die one day. The Bible has the answer. Wherefore, as by one man... Sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so you put these three things together. What was Jesus doing on the cross? The defilement of our sin, taking it upon himself. The guilt of our sin, taking it upon himself. The penalty of our sin, taking it upon himself. And the result was that God had to withdraw. Jesus had to do this alone. If I've told you this story, it's been a long time. But perhaps many of us know the name Donald Gray Barnhouse, quite a preacher of the last century over in Philadelphia, Presbyterian. Came a day when his wife died, and of course, in the particular scenario there, there were younger children. And they were in the car they were driving to the funeral of the woman who was his wife and these children's mother. Pulled up at a red light. Barnhouse said uh, as he pulled up at that red light, there was a truck that pulled up, said that never had seen a truck bigger than this particular truck. It pulled up right at that moment. And he noticed that as that truck pulled up, it cast a huge shadow over into the snow-covered field on the side. Well, preachers are always looking for illustrations, and God spoke to him in that moment, and he said to his kids, look, children, at that truck. Look at that shadow. He asked them, if you had to be run over, would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? They all said, well, of course, the shadow. He said, that's right. He said, death is the truck, but the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck ran over Jesus. All the way, going back into the Old Testament, thinking about the psalmist, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you might experience physical death if Jesus tarries. But if you know Jesus Christ here today, the real impact of death, which is separation from God for eternity, in the place the Bible describes as hell, it'll never hit you. That truck will never hit you because it hit Jesus and ran him over solid on the cross of Calvary. That's what he was doing. That's why God abandoned him in those moments. And I'll tell you something else before we finish today. Whatever happened there happened once and will never happen again. It happened once in all eternity. 
and it'll never happen again. The fellowship between God and his son. I want you to think about this for a minute because this is kind of something you can take away. You think about how we understand that God is one but exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? You think about the fact that inherent in God's very makeup is intimate fellowship, something we don't really think about, but the harmony and fellowship that exists within the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is really a model of the fact that God has made us for fellowship. We, we, we reflect that very thing in our nature. And never, never in all eternity past until the cross and never to be repeated will it happen again that the fellowship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit was ever disrupted. And it happened in those three hours when he hung on that cross in which he became my sin substitute and took upon him my defilement and took upon him my guilt and took upon him my penalty. And the scripture is clear because when this happened and that darkness lifted, Jesus cried out, it is finished. He did what had to be done. The infinite Son of God, the power of his blood to cleanse men from sin is infinite because of who he is. Thou hast made his soul an offering for sin. It'll never happen again. And you know, the Bible goes to such pains to point this out, and I have a reason for saying this, which I'll get to in a moment. I just want you to hear a couple of the verses. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 9.26, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, once, in the verse in the bulletin today. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the, unjust, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. It'll never be repeated, so you need to understand that when we come here to the Lord's table, we are not re-sacrificing the Son of God. That has been done once and for all. We just have symbols here to remind us that broken bread symbolizes his broken body. That juice crushed from grapes symbolizes his precious blood. But we do that in remembrance of what he did and it's been accomplished once and you don't have to add to it. And folks, that's such a soul-liberating truth once you get it because you realize there's nothing I have to do because he did it. Do you realize in the ancient world, that it's similar to you going in and asking somebody, say, I paid my bill, stamp that. Stamp that paid. See, that word telestai in Greek that he uttered from the cross, that's exactly what you would stamp. If they had had a stamp in that day, that's what you would have stamped it. It has been paid. It has been finished. And I'll tell you something. I don't have much confidence in me. I've learned better than that. I just, only by the power of God you come to realize, you know, what an arrogant, sinful, prideful notion to think that we could ever contribute to our salvation when we're just hell-bent, lost, deserving sinners. There's nothing we could ever do to help ourselves, but there's nothing we have to do. Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. There's your defilement. He washed it white as snow. His blood can make the foulest clean, we're told. If I don't have anything else going for me, I have that. I'm really thankful for that. I hope you are. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior here today, I hope 
somehow this service can cause to well up within you, especially as we approach Easter, some sense of how much God does love us and what he has done for us, how worthless we are. And I would just say to you in closing today that you know this is a whole lot. What I've talked about here this morning, this is a whole lot more than just trying to enter into another man's sorrows. This is a lot more than just going to a play and being affected as you see the actors and you are drawn with sympathy to someone's plight in the play. This is a whole lot more than that. This is about realizing that what he did there was not just some play to watch. It was something he did for me. It was something he did for you. He was there for me. He was there for you. He was there to heal our estrangement from God. So that's a big word. Well, we talk about it sometimes when marriages fail, so we ought to understand it. We say a couple's estranged. Why? Because sin, sin's the great relationship breaker. He did that to heal our estrangement from God, both in this life and in the one to come, to bring us to God. That's why I chose that verse for the bulletin. He suffered once the just for the unjust to bring us to God, to heal, to bridge that gap, to make it possible for so unlikely a person as me to be able to come into God's presence. And I just don't understand, except to know I come in Jesus' name. So the Bible says that. I'm not coming in my own righteousness. I don't have to worry about mine. which They're just filthy rags, but he took all that and gave me his own righteousness so that when I come to God in Jesus' name, God isn't looking at me in my sin. He's looking at his son and the standing that I have in him. Do you know the book, All Quiet on the Western Front? If you haven't read it, you've at least probably heard that title, All Quiet on the Western Front. It was written by a German veteran. Sort of interesting because in it, the story is told of two soldiers during World War II. They would have been enemies to each other because one was German and the other was, I'm not sure, allied. And what happened was in the story that is told in the book that an artillery shell fell, created this large crater, and the German soldier looking for some way to find shelter and protection ran down in that or got down in that crater to hide from the, what was going on, the, all the explosions and other things that, that may have been going on around him to, to, to seek, seek shelter. When he got into that crater, somehow he saw that other soldier, allied soldier, had been wounded severely. He was dying. And the German soldier was touched by it. And he went over to the man. He took water from his canteen, gave it to the man. He listened for a few moments as the man talked about his wife and his family, his children. He even helped the man get his wallet out so that he could see for a last time before he died the picture he carried there of his family, his children, his wife. Somehow they became different people in those moments. They were transformed in those moments from being estranged, from being enemies. Instead, to being two people who just looked at each other. The German was a father. The wounded man was a father. The German had a wife and kids. The wounded man had a wife and kids. The point, though, is, is that what it took to bring this moment of reconciliation between them was death. Imminent death hanging over that allied soldier is what, what it took. And I tell you, to heal the estrangement and the separation that exists between sinners and God, it took death, the death of Jesus. But I have the joy of telling you today, he was successful. It's done, it's done. The great transaction is done. 
And you can have complete confidence today if you know Christ as your personal Savior that you can fellowship with God in this life. You can be close to Him. You can worship Him. You can pray to Him. You can walk with Him. When that wasn't possible before. And if Jesus tarries when you die, you can fellowship with Him for all eternity because that barrier has been bridged by Jesus. That estrangement has been healed. And in that context, I ask you just to think about this before we pray. Of that verse that I quoted earlier, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He explains what was going on. To wit, that in other words, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and hath committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation was what happened in those moments between the German and the allied man. Reconciliation is what was accomplished on the cross of Calvary, but in closing, you just have to think about this. Jesus died on the cross, and that satisfied God. God is the one to whom the injury is done. God is the offended party. And that payment has been made. God is satisfied. So God is like a man whose face was turned away from you and me, who's now looking back, ready to show his favor, ready to stretch out his hand, ready to shake, as it were. But what happens is you and I are still like this. God's over here with an outstretched arm because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. You and I are still like this before we're saved. Still looking this way. Because all we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, don't want anything to do with God. Hands outstretched. I want to know you. I want to forgive you. I want to heal you. I want to give you a relationship with me that will heal your soul. One day someone came along. Because that's what he says in that same context. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. And I was like this, and one day somebody came along and said, if you'll just turn around, if you'll just turn around, You'll see how much God loves you and you'll see that he's smiling and you'll see that his hand is extended and you'll see that he wants to take you into his embrace and he wants to heal you and forgive your sins. Will you do that? Hey, Tom, will you do that? Will you turn around? Will you get saved? And sometimes as Christians, we kind of need to be reminded you get off going our own way and that fellowship becomes injured and broken. The way it's restored is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, excuse me, will you turn around? Will you make what you need to make right with God so that you walk out of here today in complete and full fellowship with him. Whether that means you need to be saved or whether that means as a Christian you just need to talk to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great love. I pray, Father, that it will touch us here today. It seems like we need it on a regular basis, which I guess is part of your wisdom in bringing us to your house on a regular basis so that we might sense your presence and sense your power and be reminded of Calvary and the songs we sang at the beginning, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. Someone came and told us. Someone came and urged us. Might not have used those words, but we know what they were doing. We pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. There's somebody here this morning that would say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. You mean God's hand is outstretched to me? You mean God's embrace is ready for me? You mean 
God wants me. He loves me. He'll heal me and forgive my sins. You mean that? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. And the majority of people here this morning would attest to the reality of that. Are you burdened for that today or you're not sure you're saved? Would you let me include you in the prayer? I'm not going to embarrass you. I don't ever do that in my invitations. I just want you to know that if you need prayer, that this will be settled soon. If you need help, I'm interested in knowing how to know this God who loves me so much. All right, is there somebody here this morning that says, Pastor, I'm a Christian. So I know what you're talking about. But I also know that some things have slipped in there. Well, remember, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquity, your sins have separated between you and your God, and your iniquities have hid his face from you that he cannot hear. You don't want disrupted, broken fellowship with God, do you? I don't think so. If you feel God is speaking to your heart about that today, and you just need a few moments, and you're ready to talk to him, and claim that promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. You need cleansing because you're defiled. That's why we have that picture, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pray for you. Father, bless us. Forgive us. The truth is, we all need to be reminded. We all need our hearts tender. And I pray you'll forgive each of us for the sins that we have purposefully or unintentionally blundered into. Thank you that you so kindly do that for us. You're faithful, it says. You're just. You can do it justly because you already punished Jesus in our stead. Thank you. It's rich. It's free. Because Jesus paid it all. Help anybody here that needs that special sense and that special opportunity just to take a few moments in the closing of this service and pray to you, talk to you about those things that are troublesome, those things that need healed, those sins that need to be forgiven. Lord, bless us, I pray in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen.